in the 8th century B.C. The prophet and his fellow Israelites, for them, all hope seemed to be evaporating right before their very eyes. They were headed into economic ruin. The structures that they had all relied upon, they had relied upon uh, their government and all the things in place that they had been used to, they were now, rather than offering them security and stability, they were all now crumbling around them. They were disillusioned by the corrupt and inept political leaders. And the magnitude of their problems was so great that their faith began to unravel. You could summarize their problem as not only were their wallets becoming almost empty, but their spiritual strength was almost gone. If you look at Isaiah chapter 8, just a little bit before the chapter 9 there of 9-6, but chapter 8 verse 21 summarizes their anguish in this way. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God. It summarizes that knowing that they were headed into things that were going to worsen even uh, to a greater degree, things becoming more filled with anguish, they were going to be filled with anger toward God and toward the person in charge. It was at this moment when desperation and discouragement were closing in that God, through his prophet Isaiah, prophesied and made the promise of, here I'm going to give you a Messiah. The Messiah is to come as one who has power. Power to overthrow the forces of evil. Power to perform transformations in people's hearts. Power to bring about reconciliation among parties where there had only been hatred and bitterness and where walls had been built dividing people. The Messiah is a righteous ruler who will put things in their proper order. He will provide a cure for the inner corruption found in every human heart. God is making in this passage in Isaiah 9-6 a promise of a king who would establish an eternal kingdom where peace and justice and righteousness would prevail. And he is uniquely qualified to work these things in space and time. He is Jesus, the mighty God. The mighty God. We're going to consider that name given to the Messiah this morning. And I like to think about it in two ways. First, I want, to, I want to reflect upon the uniqueness of Christ the Messiah by thinking about a baby born who is God. He's God. Every time this Hebrew word for God, which is the Hebrew word El, E-L, as in Elohim, uh, or Daniel, Daniel, the E-L is the name for God. It appears, every time the word Hebrew word for God appears in Isaiah, it refers to God. An example would be in Isaiah chapter 10, another, past, another chapter forward, you find this same reference to God being mighty in these words. Chapter 10, verse 20. It will come about in that day that the remnant of Israel 
And those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. The one promised by God in chapter 9, verse 6, is none other than God himself is going to come in the person of the Messiah. And yet he is born as a helpless infant. How can that be? And this is where, again, I would just remind you that the incarnation, the teaching that says that God became man, is a central article of the Christian faith. And this truth of the incarnation of God, taking on human flesh, sets Christianity apart from all other world religions. No other religion affirms a similar astounding thought or concept. And Christians affirm that the birth of this baby in Bethlehem, who was fully God and fully man, is nothing less than mysterious. It is full of wonder. It is mind-boggling, the thought of that. But that's exactly what the Bible teaches. And Martin Luther, and he tried to summarize in his own mind what the incarnation meant, he came up with this interesting poetic expression. He said, He whom the world could not enwrap, which is another way of saying contain. He who, he who could... Whom, who, he whom the world could not enwrap, yonder lies in Mary's lap. You just sort of scratch your head on that. It's hard to fathom it. But that's what the biblical record contains an abundance of convincing proofs that this little infant born of the Virgin Mary in the city of David was indeed God. And I have listed on the back of your notes there in your bulletin, so many texts of Scripture and so many evidences and proofs to show that the claim that Jesus was not merely a man, but he is God in human flesh. I'm not going to take the time to go over that list. I'll let you look that over on your own at some point. If you've ever been challenged on that area, if you want to look into this more deeply, I encourage you to take some time and to ponder that evidence. There's a preponderance of evidence about Jesus not being merely a good man. And I would add to that record of what you have there in your notes There were numerous eyewitnesses of Jesus who did not hesitate to affirm his deity. Thomas, for example, on bended knee, says of Jesus, My Lord and my God. That's a bold thing to say if it was just another human being. And then I think it's fascinating, the Apostle Paul, who at one time again, was the most zealous opponent of Jesus Christ. He, was, he and his followers, he was radically opposed to them. And here is Paul, he is transformed in his heart and his perspective and his loyalties and his estimation of Jesus. And after meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, he then continues to speak of Jesus in this way. He says, I am looking forward to the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, God and Savior. Now I want us to take a few moments to think of the logical implications about this ton of evidence that's out there regarding Jesus and his deity. And if Jesus is God, and since he is God, 
What then? What difference does it make? I'd like to make several thoughts here, several comments. Number one, we dare not dismiss Jesus as a myth, a fable, or just a mere human. May I remind you that Jesus himself claimed to be God. John 10.30, I and the Father are one. That was interpreted to mean a claim to be God. They picked up stones in order to stone him for blasphemy. Jesus did what only God could do. He raised the dead and he forgave sins. And Jesus received worship, which only God deserves. Matthew 28. Jesus is not merely a good teacher. You cannot leave him as just, that's the way I'm going to look at him. No, he cannot be a good teacher. He claimed to be God. And all of us will face Jesus at some point in your existence. If not in this life, then in the life to come. Everyone will one day bend their knees before Jesus and they will, as an act of reverence, acknowledge Him as the sovereign God and the ruler over all. The Bible says that everyone is going to bend their knee and confess Jesus is Lord. And I think Lord there means God, King over all. Philippians chapter 2. And the reaction that people have to being in the presence of Christ is it will be a powerful reaction to be in the presence of Jesus, knowing that He is God. I find it interesting when people react to me at times. I'm not trying to put myself in the same situation of people meeting Christ, but I'm, I'm going to get to where I'm going to get that in a minute. But uh, one time years ago, I was playing golf uh, with uh, actually a fellow that was running for mayor here in a little town, village of Lake Grove. And I'm uh, meeting all these people in town and stuff, and uh, he invited me to come, and it was nice. And uh, we were out there playing. Of course, people are playing the game of golf, and they're frustrated, and they're letting all sorts of obscenities fly left and right, whatever, you know. And so the guy I play golf with as we um, talked in the golf cart, uh, he said, what do you do? I said, well, I'm a pastor, a pastor of the church right in town. He goes, oh. <laughs> and so then he says, oh, forgive my French, pastor. No, he started calling me father. Yeah, he calls me father. Forgive my, forgive my French, father. And the whole rest of the game, you could tell, is he was feeling guilty about the way in which he conducted himself. I'm like, I didn't make him say those things. He began to feel it. And I would just say this. When people begin to understand who Jesus really is, he is not merely just a human being, a good teacher. But if they come face to face with Christ, it's interesting the reactions. Peter, for example. When he realized that Jesus was not merely a respectable rabbi, but one day when Jesus performed a miracle regarding fish, which was really profound for Peter because Peter's life was fishing. And when he saw the power of Jesus Christ demonstrated in catching this big, big catch of fish, he reacted in this way, Luke chapter 5. He fell down at Jesus' feet saying, get away from me. Lord, for I am a sinful man. Immediately his conscience was convicting him that he was in the presence of God. And then text goes on to say that amazement seized him. 
You see, Jesus is the supreme and sovereign ruler of the universe. He is the holy and righteous one. He upholds our very life under his control. According to Acts, we read there that Paul says, it is Jesus who gives all of us life and breath and everything. It comes from Jesus. And in Jesus, we live and move and have our being every day. And so what I'd like to suggest is, I wonder, how would you react to the wonder that our majestic Messiah would choose to enter into our little gloomy world? How does that impact your heart? Do you marvel at Him? Do you ever bow in adoration and just sit and ponder the wonder and be in awe and be reflective in a way that just sort of leaves you with a sense of bewilderment and adoration and praise that Jesus, you would enter into my world, my messy world, my messed up world. Is your heart humbled at the fact that his coming was in such a humble way? Even as God, he still comes into this world, the world that he made. Does the rescuing, redeeming love as demonstrated on the cross when Jesus died for sinners like you and me, does that help to lift you out of your self-centered little world? Does it cause you to think a little bit more about reorienting your purpose of your life to live in such a way that you now have a better, more likely desire to, to live to please Him because of how He's shown you His love in the Incarnation? As God? Do you find Jesus' incarnational love motivating you to regard other people as more important than you? To be looking out for their interests and not just merely the interests of your own? Would you say that Jesus is at the center of your life's solar system? And that you see the planet of your life revolving around Him? Sometimes I think that we're so caught up in our world and our thing and what we want to accomplish is that Jesus is oftentimes brought into our world where we're to revolve our whole world around him. It's all about Jesus who is God in human flesh who's come into your world. Has he come into your world? The world of your heart? Do you worship him? Indeed the song that we heard sung there during the offertory the notes are the actual song I forgot to mention to you is in your bulletin, by the way, so you can work on singing this at some other time. But it says, Today a Savior has been born. He is Christ the Lord, placed within a humble trough, a feeding trough. This baby must be adored. You say, well, most of us adore babies because they're so cute. But this baby and all that he accomplished and all that he is, even today, he must be adored as Christ the Lord. I want to move to the second point here, which is a sort of an interesting point to think about. He is God, mighty God. I want to think about the word mighty now for a moment. Because here's a helpless babe who is all-powerful. A helpless babe born who is all-powerful. The Hebrew word here for mighty conveys the idea of strength and power. And it was commonly associated with someone who was a warrior, someone who was a successful, strong, valiant person who can accomplish great feats on the battlefield. 
The term in Hebrew appears in Nehemiah chapter 9. God, the great, the mighty one, the awesome God. These are all titles ascribing God and his character. But I've got to question mine. I started thinking about this. Isn't the phrase or the title mighty God redundant? Can God be anything but mighty? I mean, think about it. Against the backdrop of the writing of this being written, of course, we knew there was widespread polygamy. Um, um, no, I was going to say polygamy. That's not the word I want to say. Uh, polytheism. There was all sorts of worship of other gods. And, and, and in the midst of all these idols that they worshipped, these idols were fashioned by the hands of mere humans. And those idols, according to Psalm 135, they offer no help. They have mouths, they don't speak. They have hands, they don't do anything. They have ears, they can't hear a thing. And so, so the God of, the, of, 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 of Jesus Christ as God, He is the true and living God. He is the maker of heaven and earth. He's the one who has communicated Himself to us, revealing Himself in the Word of God. And therefore, I've included this quote in your notes with Stephen Charnock who summarized Jesus' power this way. He says, Jesus has the ability and strength whereby he can bring to pass whatsoever he pleases, whatsoever his infinite wisdom can direct, and whatsoever his infinite purity of his will can resolve. So I think this idea of mighty God is designed to contrast the Messiah, Jesus, from who will be unlike the false gods who supposedly control some little dominion somewhere. You know, it's like this is the god of this particular uh, area, like the sea or the, the clouds or the, uh, you know, the, the river or whatever. This is the god of this particular locality. No, this is Jesus now is the god who is mighty because he controls all things and has all power, and therefore he made the earth and he sustains it. And I wonder if it really what is being conveyed in this idea of mighty god is that Jesus his foes are incapable of defeating him. Satan tries to ruin all that Christ has made. He desires to take what rightfully belongs to Jesus Christ, and he, he, he and his forces of wickedness, they try to use their power to enslave people, to deceive people, to oppress people, as many as possible. And Satan's efforts have left this world enslaved to corruption, Romans chapter 8. Satan promotes false religion, immoral practices, self-centered living. And Satan is continually at war against God. And in his incarnation, Jesus, as mighty God, did battle against the devil and against demonic forces. And he exhibited his power over satanic forces when he laid down his life voluntarily and was crucified in weakness for our sins and raised from the dead with great power. Jesus' kingdom is established, but it's not fully manifested. And as the gospel is proclaimed, as the gospel is lived out, Jesus works by His Spirit through the church, through you and me, to impart new life, to bring the gospel to other people's lives, to create new hearts and set captives free, to overturn the curse of sin. Praise God for what we're hearing from the luncheon yesterday, from the tea. This is the kind of thing that we pray for, that God would do a mighty work through the gospel. And Jesus delivers his own from the domain of darkness. He transfers us to the kingdom of his son. 
And one day His power is going to be fully revealed. And all forms of sin's curse will be removed. Death, decay, and suffering, and injustice, and sickness, and enslavement. And one day Jesus will restore all that was destroyed by Satan and sin. And those of us who are in Christ, and those of us who have repented and who have been turned from sin, and by faith we receive the gift of eternal life, we have this promise that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of the dead. And it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Therefore we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What's he saying? He's saying that the mighty God, Jesus Christ, he will protect and preserve and keep his own till the end. That is a word of comfort and security and calm assurance in a world in which so many things could go wrong and do go wrong in amazing ways. What are the implications of this? Well, since it's true that Jesus is the mighty God, every believer, therefore, can have confidence. Confidence. Jesus, by his power and divine strength, can empower us to do what he has called us to do. Whenever we feel inadequate, we feel like we're lacking in the strength to do God's revealed will, find comfort, find assurance, find confidence in Philippians 4.13. I can do some things. I can do a couple of things. I can do an occasional thing. No, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's not a confidence that says, oh, look at me. I'm strong. I can handle anything. That's not the case at all. Paul's saying what? My strength comes from Christ. I'm confident in Christ. And when we feel weak, my friends, that is when we fall back on this verse. Since Christ is mighty God, he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or imagine, as Peggy read to us earlier today. According to the power that works in us. Here's another verse I'd like you to write down. It's not in your notes, but it's a very helpful uh, verse that just came to me this morning. Jeremiah 32, 17 to 19a. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. And then he moves forward and he says, Great and mighty God. Oh, great and mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name, great in counsel and mighty indeed. Wow, what a great reminder of Christ the creator, Christ the sustainer, Christ the supplier of what we need day by day. And then I'm giving you a quote that I find so helpful from Arthur Pink. He says, nothing is too hard for Jesus. Seeing that he is clothed with omnipotence, no power is too hard for him. No prayer is too hard for him to answer. No need is too great for him to supply. No passion is too strong for him to subdue. No temptation is too powerful for him to deliver from. And no misery is too deep for him to relieve. Where do you fit into that list, my friend? Are you struggling in an area of your life? You find yourself dealing with 
a secret lust that you can't seem to get the upper hand on. You find yourself feeling as though you have too many needs. You don't know how in the world you're going to be able to handle things. You feel like you're, you're facing misery that is so deep and you feel like you're so grieved and filled with such agony of heart and anguish. It's not too deep for Christ, my friend. It is Jesus, the Almighty One. And because Jesus is that Mighty One, I'm wondering, how would life look differently for you if you truly believed and counted on Jesus, the Mighty God? Would you be much more likely to pray? Would you be much more confident in your prayers? Would you be a person who is more willing to ask for prayer? Because you say, I need the Lord to help me. I'm weak. But I believe He is the what? Mighty God. It makes a big difference whether or not we truly believe Jesus is mighty God or not. I want to quickly look to the next point, which I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, but I feel like I needed to add it to, to our list of the implications. Because Jesus is mighty God, we can find hope in the midst of spiritual warfare. We already talked about that a couple of weeks ago as we had a couple of sermons on being strong in the Lord and therefore knowing that he is one who can help us in the midst of our battle. And I'd like to give you another verse on that, Zephaniah 3.17. I encourage you to look this up, meditate on this this coming week. If you are faced with a situation where you feel like Satan has just knocked you down and you feel like you're not experiencing any victory, you feel as though you're, you're defeated and discouraged, all you're looking at is your total failures left and right. Meditate on Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God in your midst. Remember, Christ came down. The Lord your God in your midst, the Mighty One, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness and singing. He will quiet you with His love. That's powerful, my friend, if you're facing battle, to know that the Mighty One is with you. You're not on your own. He's with you. And He's rejoicing over you. That's the gospel. He doesn't rejoice over you just because you do the right things. He rejoices over you. Therefore, you're motivated to do the right things. He's able to empower us in battle. Why? He was tempted and tried in every way like us, yet without sin. Rely on Him. Be confident in Him. And I find here something else. When it comes to spiritual battle, I find that when we understand and perceive our weaknesses are the more likelihood we're going to see his power show up. An example. I think of a woman, I probably mentioned this before years ago, uh, when I was in Virginia, there was a woman that I always, always found to be a richly encouraging visit. Every time she was a shut-in, I would go visit in her home. Her name is Elsie Hewitt. And I would knock on the door and she'd say, Come in! she could hardly move around. She had arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, so badly that her fingers were gnarled and twisted and distorted. She couldn't even open her hands to give me a handshake. Her feet were so gnarled and twisted up, her toes, that they had to cut open the front of her shoes because no shoes would accommodate the way in which they were poking up and things. And she was in extreme pain every day. And she would have a smile on her face, greet me with a smile, and she'd say, you know, the Lord is so good to me. Wow, when I heard that woman say that, I'd walk out of that visit, and I'd say, 
Thank you, God, for the power of the Holy Spirit working in this woman's weakness to show forth a tremendous sense of confidence and understanding of the power of God working in her. It's a beautiful thing. Then I go to the next lady's house. She was also shut in. And I go listen to her complain for half an hour. And she has no arthritis. I used to say to her, I used to want to say to her, would you just knock it off and call up Elsie for a moment? <laughs> I think about Mary, the mother of Jesus. What does she say? Here she is, a virgin, conceived, bearing a child, who is going to bring to her ongoing and constant shame to her society and her her peers and her her framework, her family, her the people that she's known with, known by. She brings this child in this situation. She is poor economically. She does not have lots of resources. She's probably poorly educated, I would imagine. And what does she say? When she's told that this one is going to be given to her, she responds and says, the mighty one has done great things for me. Is that your testimony? Jesus, the mighty God, has done great things for me. Or are you a person that so quickly launches into complaining about what God is not doing in your life rather than being thankful and confident that He is, has power and can give you strength to do what you need to do in the situation you find yourself in, even if you're in anguish, even if it's dark, even if it's filled with gloom? That's when the power of God is most clearly seen. You say, how do you know that? Look at the cross. Jesus enters into weakness so that as a result of his weakness in death, his strength and power, the resurrection, can be there so clearly seen. Same is true in our lives. Last thing I want to say here is another implication of this wonderful truth is that God... Mighty God and Jesus Christ is able to impart new life into a heart that is dead in sin through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The same Jesus who called Lazarus from a tomb in which he had been laid to rest for three days is the same mighty God who is able to quicken sinners and bring them to life from spiritual death because the, po- the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. The power that says that God, only God can overcome our sinful nature. Only God can give us a new life. We have no power to change another person's heart. But Jesus, through the gospel, transforms hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And the gospel is powerful enough to impart a new nature and new desires, and new affections, and new patterns of thinking, and a new identity, and new motivations. The gospel has that power because Jesus Christ, uh, who, uh, who is the center of the gospel, is mighty God. Do we believe it? Let's be joyful. Let's rejoice. Let's worship. And let's keep proclaiming Christ until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we pray today as we bow before you that you would help us to not 
forget the fact that we are weak, to not overlook the fact that we are limited in our ability, we are vulnerable, we fail, we fall short. Help us, Lord, to get our eyes off of ourselves and to get our eyes of our heart and on Christ, who is mighty God. Help us, Father, to believe that he is mighty to save, he is mighty to help, he is mighty to change and transform people. And I pray, Father, that you would continue to help us uh, no longer be filled with dismay, but, Lord, in our times of weakness, times in which we're humbled, times in which we feel like, Lord, life has, has really become so difficult for us, Lord, help us to see that that's where you have led us so that we might turn to you, Lord Jesus, the mighty God, and we might see your strength made perfect in our weakness. And so, Father, I pray that as we go through this time of Advent, that you might fill us with a sense of wonder and awe and praise of our Lord Jesus, and that you might, Lord, be pleased with our humble response to him as we surrender to him and yield ourselves to him, saying, Lord Jesus, I'm yours. Do with me as you see fit. Continue to empower me to do what you call me to do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand as we